The following recording is a presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome you to visit our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Well, I'd like you to open your Bibles now, if you would. We'll go back to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 10. And while you're turning to this passage, I want to read one verse from the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. Here in Hebrews 11, the author says in verse number 13, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Now, those of you that are familiar with that passage in Hebrews, you know that Hebrews chapter 11 is called the Hall of Faith. And it's filled with examples of believers that through faith endured great hardships. Many lost their lives because they were committed to wholly following the Lord. I read that passage because I find it to be a parallel to this text of Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 10. There is a high level of commitment that Christ expects from his followers. There is a cost involved in following Jesus. And that cost, unfortunately, is mostly foreign to the thinking and preaching that we find in most American churches today. And that cost is ignored by some who think that the precautions that we went through this morning, these things that we had to do in order to have this service, they think that is just too much. Well, I'd like you to hear the words of Jesus. And of course, I didn't write these verses. There's nothing here that I made up. This is Jesus speaking and telling his disciples about the real cost of Christianity. Now, if you look again in Matthew chapter 10 and verse number 34, Jesus said, Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father, and the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes shall be they of his own household. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now, as you saw in the earlier reading of that long passage of Matthew 10, this is a grueling passage for the flesh. These verses contain a type of Christianity that's far different from preaching heard on any given Sunday morning and just about any church that you choose to attend. Christianity is simply not supposed to be this hard. Certainly not what Jesus said in this passage. What Christianity should do is to spruce our lives up a bit. It should make us feel a little bit better about ourselves to make us winners in a world that is full of losers. Christianity, conversion, becoming a follower of Jesus has become more about us than it is about him. Today's Christianity has no view towards the glory of God. It has precious little about what Christ expects. It says hardly anything at all about his purpose in coming to this earth. There is no gospel any longer of repentance from sin. There is no fleeing from the wrath to come. There is no change of behavior. There is no holiness. The Christianity of today is nothing like what we've just read in this passage and 
these other verses that preceded the text reading today. Now the theme of this chapter is Jesus teaching and preparing his disciples for what they would face when they went out on their own to preach the gospel. Jesus called 12 men to be his disciples and he gave them a straightforward description of what would happen to them when they began to preach the gospel of the kingdom. And here we see that he says that they will be attacked for their preaching. Some would believe them, but most wouldn't. And it's now been proven over all these centuries that most will not believe. And the few that do believe are put into the same predicament as the apostles and Jesus. As Hebrews says, people who believe in Jesus Christ, true Christians are strangers and pilgrims on this earth. We are different from others. Our values are different. Our desires are different. Our lives are different. And no matter how much the world shouts this thing about the value of religious diversity and other types of diversity, they really don't like this type of diversity. Real Christianity is not a part of their system because it doesn't fit. And so the answer to the problem, they believe, is to change Christianity into something that the world will accept. It's blended with worldly values and incorporates much of the same thinking. It seeks to unite people under a banner that God says absolutely will not fit with the Bible. Christianity, according to the Word of God, is light versus darkness. It's truth versus error. It's righteousness versus unrighteousness. And if you really want to get down to the brass tacks of the words of Jesus Christ himself, our Savior, he said, it is the children of the devil versus the children of God the Father. And no matter how much you try to squeeze those two together into the same space, no matter how much you try to unite them, you can't do it without changing one or the other. You can't have light and darkness existing in the same space. And so either they get saved and they are converted to Jesus Christ and become entirely different from the world as all true Christians are. Either that or Christianity must be changed to be like the world, to have the same values, the same desires. And that, in effect, is to destroy the entire ministry of Jesus Christ. And I would like to submit this is what the Christian world, so to speak, is like today. It's not the Christianity of Christ. It's not the Christianity of the cross. It's not a group of sojourners and pilgrims and foreigners that are just passing through this world on our way to a better land. No, Christianity is perfectly at home right where we are. These are people seeking a little bit more money from the faith. A little bit more contentment, a little bit more happiness. It's people that have a pipe dream with hope of heaven when there's no real reason to think that hope exists. We will not reach heaven on our terms. We will not be disciples of Christ on our terms. The Bible describes the way to heaven. And the only way to get there is through real faith in Jesus Christ. And so in this chapter, Jesus plainly tells us what following him will be like. And if we have settled on something less than this, and what the Savior himself says, then what the one who is Christianity, and make this so you understand, Christianity is not a religion, Christianity is Christ. So if he's the one who said this, if we don't follow this, we don't have the real saving faith, and we can't be disciples of Christ as he has described it here. 
Now today I want to speak to you about just a small part of this chapter. And my subject today is the paradox of peace. There is a paradox of peace. And this 34th verse is not what we expect Jesus to say. Verse 34. Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace but a sword. I dare say that if you speak to our national leaders, if you speak to most church leaders, they will say Jesus is all about peace and love and harmony, that Jesus never wants any division. He's only interested in uniting all people. Now, back in the 60s and 70s, there, there was the Jesus movement, and the thrust of that movement was for everybody to just peace out, everybody just love each other, stop all wars, stop all disagreements, stop all fighting, just love each other like Jesus taught people to love. And they sought to find that peace, love, and contentment in an idealistic Jesus without really knowing the way that Jesus said peace can be found. And they didn't understand that, yes, Jesus will bring peace, but not until man is at peace with God. And all that are at peace with God then will be at peace with each other. And so do you want to know how we can heal all of this racial division in our country today? And you want to know how this discontentment and division can be brought back together, people can be united? Well, there's only one way. And that is by receiving Jesus Christ and being reconciled to God. It's by becoming children of God who are like each other. And when we are like the Son of God, we are all equally God's children. And we are all reconciled to God and then reconciled to each other. Now let me show you what I mean about the paradox of peace. Yes, there is peace in Jesus Christ. And this peace is what we call The believer's peace. The peace that Jesus came to bring is a peace that's predicated upon ending the hostility that exists between God and man. That's where all peace begins. When the Bible talks about peace, that is the central issue. How is man at peace with God? Because there is no peace any other way. Now, Jesus really did come to bring peace... And the way that he brings this peace is by faith in him as the savior of the world. And being the savior, of course, means that there is something to be saved from. The apostle Paul wrote in Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Now, a moment ago, I said trying to squeeze Christianity and the world together into the same space is impossible. Paul went on to say in verse 21 of that chapter, Because that when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Now, here is that darkness and light contrast. The heart's of men and women are darkened. They don't have the light of God. They don't have a relationship with Him because God hates sin and sin rules the human heart and sin's rule must be broken. Sin cannot rule in God's kingdom. Now, if you'll take your Bible and turn to Ephesians chapter 2, Paul enlightens us here on how this peace is made. Uh, The Scriptures tell us that there is 
only one way to end the rule of sin and to take away God's wrath. The only way to be reconciled to God and be at peace with him is found in this passage. Peace is obtained by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, in Ephesians chapter 2, and beginning at verse 14, For he is our peace, who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that just means hostility, the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you, which were afar off, and to them that were nigh. Here Paul is writing to Gentile Christians, and without going into an an entire explanation of this text, or of the entire text, he's teaching that all people, whether Jew or Gentile, are at peace with God in only one way. That peace comes through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross because he satisfied God for the sins that we committed against God. And so, folks, if you want peace with God, if you want the peace that Jesus brings, then you must trust him completely to save you from your sins. And that means that you must admit that you are a sinner and that sin separates you from God and that you are without Jesus Christ living under the curse of God because of sin. There's only one way to be reconciled to God and thus achieve peace again, Jesus Christ. So any person who tries to make a lasting peace with his fellow man without first making peace with God is living in a dream world. And this is the reason in human history there's never been a lasting peace. It's impossible because sin separates us from God and sin separates us from each other. And that's true on the world level. It's true on the national level. It's true on your neighborhood level. And even as it says right here in verse number 35 of our text, on the family level, if families that know each other and live with each other can't find peace, then how in the world do you think the world will find peace? And this is the reason that in every country of the world there is racial discord. There is no country that has solved the problem of racial bias. The only lasting peace is to have God at the center of all of our relationships and to have all those relationships orbit around Him. If we are at peace with God through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, we will be at peace with each other. All people that are at peace with God will be at peace with each other. So you can see, if anyone tries to make peace by uniting people around the principles that Jesus taught without knowing the one who gave the principles, they'll never be at peace. They must come to him in faith, the one who reconciles all to God. Well, this ought to show you that a Christianity that compromises with the world and tries to put light and darkness into the same space is not only fruitless, but is is dangerously deceptive. These types of preachers and churches are the friends of no one. Their peace is a false peace because they make people think things are right with God when they aren't. Jeremiah in the Old Testament experienced the very same thing with Israel. 
concerning priests and false prophets of his day. The false prophets and the priests said, well, you don't really need to worry about things. We have peace. Everything is right with God. And that was just before Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians and the people were taken captive. The priests and the prophets, they kept preaching to the people, telling the people, everything's fine. Everything is all right. We can go on just as we are. It's okay. And they wouldn't address the sins of the people. They would never call out the sins of the people. And they even indulge in the same sins themselves. That's what the priests and the prophets of, of Judah did. They engaged in sin themselves and never called anybody to repentance. And so God says in Jeremiah 6.14, They have healed also the hurt of the daughter of my people slightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. And so they made the people feel better, not knowing that right around the corner was the Babylonian army that was about to destroy their city and tear down their temple and haul them out of their land, lock, stock, and barrel and make them slaves in a foreign country. There was no peace. All they were doing was blissfully ignoring the truth. And theirs was a false peace. And that is emblematic of what false preachers do today. They make people think that all is well between them and God. They feel good and they preach a feel-good religion and they don't realize that destruction is right around the corner. And these are people that will die and they fully believe that they're going to wake up at the entrance of the pearly gates and they're ready to go in to get their ticket punched, to get the passport into heaven. When in reality they are going to wake up in the fires of an eternal hell with no hope of escape. Now, do you understand why that we don't want to dialogue with churches and pastors that do that? Do you see why we don't want to pursue the leaders of other faiths and have peace with them because we have what they think or some think is common ground because we believe in a God. We have no common ground with them. There is no peace. Ephesians 5.11 says, And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness but rather reprove them. Now, read that, that chapter. Do you think that the apostle was talking about atheists? No, he was speaking about religious people. Religious people still in the darkness of this world. And he's speaking of a compromising Christianity that tries to hold on to the world. Compromising Christianity doesn't cut it. Jesus will bring peace. Most certainly he will. He came to make peace but he makes that peace based on his own blood and belief in his blood as satisfaction to the wrath of God. So that's the believer's peace. And Jesus came to make that peace and he did make it. He did make it by the cross. But only those that believe in Jesus Christ and him alone receive the benefit of that peace. Now I want to show you something about this peace. The, the people that lived in Jesus' time fully expected that when the Messiah came, he would bring peace. They expected a kind of peace that would, would, in fact, end all the hostility between Jews and Gentiles. Specifically at that time, it would have been the Romans in the Roman Empire. That the hostility would end. And how would it end? Well, their proposal for peace and what they thought the Messiah would do was to elevate the Jews into power and push down the Gentiles into subjection. Just reverse the tables. Jews up, Gentiles down, instead of the Jews being slaves to the Gentiles. And that was the common belief of all the people. That, in fact, was the common belief of the disciples. Jesus 
is speaking to the apostles in the passage, they have the same misconceptions as the rest of the people. And this kind of peace that they were looking for would not happen. At least it wouldn't happen when Jesus came the first time. The Messiah will bring peace. He brings peace to a world of believers. And one day he will come back and he will subdue the world and his kingdom will fill the entire earth. And then there will be worldwide peace. But that wasn't the time. And as we look at today and what's going on, this is apparently not the time. And so thus we see the paradox. Jesus came to bring peace, but at the same time, he was not there to bring peace. That is not peace on their terms. So if you want to know, yes, peace is possible now. There, it is possible, but only the believer's peace. It's the peace of salvation in Jesus Christ. Now we see the other side of this. The other side is the broken peace. Preachers would do well to consider Jesus' words in verse 34. He didn't come to bring political peace. He was not there to cure Israel's woes as a political savior. He came to bring a sword. He very clearly said that, didn't he? He came not to bring peace, but a sword. Did that confuse them? Here's the Messiah, and there is no peace. Isn't that what we've always heard? The Messiah comes, and he will bring peace. And this is exactly why we need the New Testament. Because the New Testament straightens out some of the confusing prophecies in the Old Testament that people misunderstood. Sometimes the Old Testament prophets foretold events that were thousands of years apart and they put them into the very same passage. Let me show you an example of this. If you turn in your Bibles to the Old Testament book of Isaiah chapter 61, I'll give you a few seconds to get there. Uh, Isaiah contains much prophecy about Jesus. Uh, It's a prophecy written about 700 years before he was born. Chapter 7 has this great passage, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Matthew quotes Isaiah chapter 7 in Matthew chapter 1 verse 23. And there he says, Emmanuel means God with us. And so that's a prophecy of the virgin birth of the Son of God. Isaiah chapter 9 says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And then it goes on to say, Of the increase of his government there shall be no end. And there are thousands of years between those two statements that are made in the same passage. Now here in Isaiah 61, if you look at verse number 1, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all that mourn. Do you recognize these words? Jesus spoke the same exact words during his personal ministry. In Luke chapter 4, he was a visiting teacher in the synagogue of Nazareth, and he was asked to read scripture. He picked Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2, and he read and explained. And he said, this day is this scripture fulfilled. He was the living fulfillment of them. How was he received when he told them that? Well, he was driven out of the synagogue. They attempted to kill him by throwing him off a cliff. 
Now, there are two points that I want to make about this. The first is that in the scripture that he read, there was a time gap that has now been over 2,000 years and hasn't yet been fulfilled. Now, when he came the first time, he preached good tidings to the meek. He came to heal the brokenhearted. His ministry was one of healing sin-sick souls and physically sick people. That's verse number one. Verse number two has this little phrase in it, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, and listen carefully, and the day of vengeance of our God. Those two phrases, the acceptable year of the Lord and the vengeance of our God, are separated by thousands of years. Because the vengeance of God upon the earth comes when he comes the second time. Now the second point I want to make is they threw Jesus out of the synagogue and wanted to kill him. Now at first they listened to what he said. They marveled at the graciousness of his words. But then he began to apply the scriptures to them. And they became so angry. They wanted to throw him off a cliff. And what was the crime? Well, it was telling them that they rejected his teachings. They didn't trust him as the Messiah. They were unbelievers. And so they were left out. And if you read this passage in Luke chapter 4, you'll find out that Jesus put them down below lepers that had been healed and Gentiles that would believe. Oh, that was infuriating. They had their own system of righteousness. They, they didn't want what Jesus offered. They thought they were far above the social outcast, certainly far above heathen Gentiles. But then Jesus just turned that around on them. Do you see a parallel there between those, those scriptures in Matthew 10? That when the gospel is preached in truth and when people are told they are sinners and they must repent and they must get right with God, what do they do? They hate the news. They reject it. They call us fanatics and they say, if you preach that kind of thing, you are out of the mainstream of Christianity. And they are exactly right. We are out of the mainstream of Christianity. We're not darkness mixed with more darkness. We're light separated from darkness and we can't mix with them. So the only way for us to get together with them is for them to come to the light because we're not going back to the dark. We were there once. We were lost in our sins. We were condemned to hell. I'm not going back. Are you? Real Christianity never goes back to the dark. It will not because real saving faith doesn't permit it. Christ doesn't permit it. Notice again, he says, I came not to send peace but a sword. Do you understand that? Do you understand what he means? In the history of Christianity, many have not understood that statement. They thought that since Jesus didn't bring peace, that the way to, to bring the peace and conquer the world for Christ is to use a sword to do it. If you've heard of the Crusades, then you know the atrocities that were committed in the name of Christ. False Christians, misguided Christians, practiced what Islam does today. These Christians tried to conquer and Christianize people by forcing them into submission or killing them with the sword, just like Muslims have done throughout the entire existence, try to kill infidels or make Muslims of them. Is that what Jesus meant? No, I can give you the meaning, and it cuts two ways, no pun intended. The first is the sword of Scripture. Jesus came to bring the gospel which is revealed in the word of God, which in turn in the scriptures is called a sword. 
Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and the joints and marrow, and as discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Ephesians calls the sword of the Spirit, calls it the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. The sword of the gospel divides people. The spiritual sword that we use is the word of God Explained by Paul in Ephesians 6.17. And this is how we conquer the world through the gospel, through the preaching of the word of God. That's what separates believers from unbelievers. It separates truth from lies. It divides the righteous from the unrighteous. It shows the difference between light and darkness. That's what the Bible does. Did you know that? You preach the Bible and truth, that's what it does. It separates people. That's the reason it's not preached in many churches. Scripture is not explained because if it's explained correctly, it will divide the congregation. What does Scripture do? It exposes sin. And people either receive Christ and get right with God, or they get mad and leave. And preachers don't want people to leave. So they have the Bible leave instead. So that's one meaning of this phrase. But more to the point of the meaning of this passage is the sword of division. The sword of division can be non-metaphorical, just as I've just spoken. The sword of the gospel, though, that is a metaphorical expression. But the sword of division can be non-metaphorical because in many cases, the literal sword or other means were used to kill Christians. Now, going back to Hebrews 11 and verse 37, they were stoned, they were sawn asunder, were tempted, were slain with the sword... They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Sometimes it is a physical sword. The first murder committed was division in a family because one was a believer and the other was an unbeliever. Cain killed his brother Abel and the root of that hatred was one loved God and the other didn't. Sometimes it is a real sword or a knife or today a gun. It can be non-metaphorical, very literal. But always there is the metaphorical sword of division. And Jesus goes on to talk about it here in this passage when he talks about the peace in families that is broken. In verse 35 of our text, for I come not, or rather I am come to set a man at variance against his father and a daughter against her mother, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's foes shall be they of his own household. He'd already addressed that in verse 21. And the brother shall deliver up the brother to death and the father the child and the children shall rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. Now he's talking about you have believers in the family and you have unbelievers and the unbelievers of families will turn on the believers in the families. This is what happened many times with Christians in the early centuries. They were forsaken by their families. They were disowned because of the faith. In a Jewish household, back in those days, if a family member was converted, the family would throw them out. And it was as if that person was dead to the rest of the family. They would even hold a funeral sometimes for family members that had converted to Christianity. They say, they're just lost to our family. That's the kind of division that comes because of the gospel. The peace is broken. And this is the paradox of believing in Christ. That the believer has peace in his heart. He, be, he, he receives peace with God because he's reconciled to God. But he has no peace with the world. 
He's too different. He's too unlike them. He's light amid darkness and he can't mix. And so Jesus is telling us, if the world accepts you and you are always at peace with people in the world, then you're either keeping your faith hidden or you don't have real faith. And I'm not talking here about being purposely antagonistic. I mean, you could carry a sign down the street that says, I am a Christian and uh, people will blow at you too. And they'll get mad at you too and you might have to have a police escort around here if you did that. You don't have to be purposely antagonistic with this. This is about people in two spiritual worlds colliding. And it spills over into the relationships between people. The gospel makes huge divisions. Well, there are people that can't take that division. There are people that can't handle being at odds with their family. Family is too important. Family must come first. And this is where it really cuts against the human grain. Your old heart, your human heart will not accept this. The old heart will not live with this kind of division. And so people often turn back from following Christ when they find out, if that's what it means, I can't go there. Family was more important than faith in Christ. And so because of this, Jesus adds verse number 37. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Here is the truth, folks. Jesus will not take second place to your family or any other relationship. Luke records a similar statement, but in a much stronger way. Luke 14, 26. If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Christianity is tougher than you thought. Does this mean you have to say to unbelieving members of your family, I hate you? I'm going to leave you because I can't stand you? Well, no, he doesn't mean that because that'd be contrary to the rest of the teaching of Old and New Testaments where he said, love your neighbor as yourself, or he said, honor your father and your mother. How are you going to reconcile that? Well, it means that love for Christ must be so strong, so binding, and so committed that all other loves of any type are secondary, and by comparison they seem as hate because our love for Jesus Christ is our priority. Is it possible to love him that way? Well, it must be because that's what he demands. Well, let me just briefly relate an example of this as we finish the message today. I think it's a great example, almost too hard to believe, this is not about Christians and non-Christians in the same family, but this is about a Christian family in which one member had to make a choice to stay with his family or stand up for Christ. The name is familiar to most of you. It was John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress. He was the author of Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. He was the author of The Holy War. John Bunyan lived in 17th century England at a time when the government told him that he must stop preaching. If he didn't conform to the confessional standard and was not licensed to preach what they told him to preach, he had to stop. Bunyan said, I can't stop preaching. God called me to preach. I will not stop. And they said, if you don't stop, we're going to throw you in jail. Now, it sounds much what happened, like what happened to the apostles in Acts chapter 4. There they were told to stop preaching. And they said, well, whether it's right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye, for we cannot speak and speak but the things we have seen and heard. 
In Acts 5, they said we ought to obey God rather than man. I'm sure John Bunyan had those scriptures going over and over in his head, Acts 4 and Acts 5. Now, this threat made was a problem because he wasn't going to a country club jail. The government didn't have a welfare program to take care of his family while he was in jail. So John Bunyan had to make a choice. Let me tell you how difficult the choice was. He loved his wife. Of course he did. Every man should love his wife. He loved his wife. He loved his children. But especially, he had a blind child that he loved dearly. And this, became a, this was just a gut-wrenching decision for him. So he could decide, stop preaching, put his family above Christ. But this is what John Bunyan said as he sat in jail for 13 years. The parting with my wife and poor children hath often been to me in this place as the pulling of flesh from my bones. And that not only because I am somewhat too fond of these great mercies, but also because I should have often brought to my mind the many hardships, miseries, and wants that my poor family was like to meet with should I be taken from them, especially my poor blind child who lay nearer my heart than all I have besides. Oh, the thought of the hardship I thought my blind one might go under would break my heart to pieces. But yet, recalling myself, thought I, I must venture all with God, though it goeth to the quick to leave you. Oh, I saw in this condition I was a man who was pulling down his house upon the head of his wife and children. Yet, thought I, I must do it. I must do it. Is it possible to love Christ so much that you leave family behind? John Bunyan did. He wasn't a bad man for doing that. He was just so committed to Christ that there was nothing that could shake his faith. And he knew this. God would take care of him and his family. And if they perish from this life, they had the hope of the reward of an eternal home in heaven. And so there are many martyrs that left, left their families behind. This is one that lived for Christ. He watched his family through the bars of a prison cell. Death would have been much easier than those 13 years to be so far away from his family, yet so near that he could see them through prison bars. One statement could have ended that separation. I will stop preaching. But he didn't stop. So he preached at the bars of the cell. He preached an uncompromising Christianity. And folks, this was not Christianity stopped by a face mask and a temperature check. I, I can't see this commitment in a church when a pastor that just gathers people together and says, hey, let's have peace. Let's get together. And let's forget about all that doctrine stuff. Let's forget about all those divisions that come because of doctrine. Let's leave the truth of God's word behind so we can be united. And they have no idea of the paradox of peace. There is a price to pay in real Christianity. There's a cost and Jesus says you must be willing to pay that cost if you want to be his disciple. So what do we do? Well, we just keep preaching peace. But we preach a peace that comes to those who have faith in Jesus Christ. He is the one that reconciles us to God. He is the one that brings peace to your life. He will reconcile you to God by faith in his Son. So in a world that's filled with troubles... In a world that simply can't get along, a world that riots and there are divisions and discontent in that world, believe it or not, there is peace. And it's the peace of knowing God through His Son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. 
Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Roner Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Brian Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Roner Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us online at www.bebaptist.org.